0: And you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, hating Peter Tatchell, director Christopher Amos joins us. But first, we chat with Jack Vidgen after we hear his new single, Goodbye. Yeah. Vidkin there and now to our interview
1: well it was a big experience a big was quite a few years of my life that I um, went through um the experience of drug addiction and yeah just battling that and I mean I'm in a place now where I'm feeling comfortable to talk about it and and I guess express that time through what I do which is music um and chat about it through that way um but no it was a very very hard and challenging time in my life um so it's, yeah, it's nice to be in a place where I can kind of look back at it and, with a bit more clarity. So tell us about what, 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 what got you to that point where, where you were able to talk about it. Um, I think well, when I was, when I got to six months sober, um, I feel, I, there was something in me that felt like, okay, well, I think this is the time. Or well, even in the lead up to being six months sober, it was, um, I felt like I wanted to release goodbye and um, I felt ready to. Um, But it was more of like just a playing it by ear situation. I mean, I'm I'm a feelings and a vibe person and the the feeling and the vibe was right. Um, And the thing is, it's an ongoing process every day. I've I've got to wake up and I I choose to do certain things and to not do certain things. And so I'm going to I kind of made that choice, I guess, to share all of those parts now of my life and my story, Um, hopefully just through the medium of music, um, but to do that and to be open with people. It's so fascinating because there's a real reborn element to goodbye, a real gospel influence. Was that intentional? Um, Honestly, I think it's just kind of it was born out of that raw emotion and I think gospel music has that. Um, I mean, I grew up listening to gospel music and it's one of my main influences, I think, um, growing up, like vocally and and what I listened to. um, So I think naturally it kind of snuck in there. 3CR I think just the voices. I mean, I've always loved like big, vo- like big, beautiful voices. And I've always loved um, people who can experiment and do things with a voice that you don't hear every day. Um, and so I think that's what drew me to, I mean, my favorites are like people like Aretha Franklin. Um, I love like Kiki Wyatt and a whole bunch of people that people probably don't like know about or King, Kim Burrell and a lot of like pastors of churches in America who, um, are artists, but mainly are pastors of churches and they're singers. So that was kind of what I grew up. I don't even know how I found them, (laughs) to be honest, but I I found them somehow and that's who I grew up listening to. So what do you do to keep your voice in such great shape? Not much. (laughs) I should probably do a lot more, to be honest. When I was younger, I was so much better and I would, I mean, I, I, I would drink certain teas all the time. I wouldn't have dairy. I wouldn't have this. I wouldn't have that before singing. I mean, I'm pretty good in, like, in the lead-up if I'm doing a TV show or a performance or a gig or something, I'm pretty good in the lead-up, especially like, the, the first like, the few days beforehand. No spicy food, no dairy. But I mean, like, I, mean I don't really eat dairy now anyway, but I'm, I, could do, I could definitely do a lot more these days than what I do. I've quit smoking, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the timing is so good with the release of Goodbye. We're out of restrictions. We're going to see you on stage. Well, I fingers crossed. I mean, things are starting to come in again, which is nice and gigs. and But, I mean, I really – I love – I mean, I was, I was like a club kid for so many years, so I'm excited for clubs to open and to release more bangers and, and in clubs with dancers and just do some big camp shows. It's, like, what I want to do so badly. Fantastic. Tell us about the big camp shows you want to do. Any ideas? Uh, well, I did one at um, Off in Sydney when I released my song before Goodbye, I Love Me Lonely, and it was just so much fun. I, it was me, four dancers, lots of glitter – an amazing crowd, um, and just a super fun, upbeat set. And it's just what I love because that's what I, for years, I would go and, and, and watch artists and DJs and drag queens and, and be in the audience kind of as I, when I was like, wasn't was in the public as much um, for a few years. And I just loved it. So, yeah, that's kind of what I, what I want to do. I want to be on the other end, though, on the stage doing it. Tell us about the drag artists who have been major influences on your work. Um, I'm not sure about my work, but I I guess, like, as me personally, I mean, coming out and growing up in Sydney and and going out on Oxford Street and Coco Jumbo, CO Tequila, Hanaconda, um, just they're they're people that have helped shape me as a queer person and and taught me kindness and and taught me fabulousness and, and, and what camp is. I mean, it's such a fabulous world. Um, the queer world and it's a hard world to navigate but it's so wonderful when you kind of like learn the tricks how to Um, and there are some people that really have really taught me how to it sounds like we're going to see some pretty camp extravaganzas from you in the future jack absolutely absolutely (laughs) (laughs) and what about dance tracks have you got any uh dance tracks you're working on i do i do i've got one that I'm really excited for from Mardi Gras. It's going to come out around Mardi Gras or just before Mardi Gras, but it's a little bit of a way I know. Um, but I'm very excited about that. Oh, do tell us more. Give us a bit of a sneak peek about what it's all about. Uh, I wish I could. I wish I could. It's 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 going to be a fun one. It's very up, temporary, very upbeat. Um, it's got a very deep kind of almost dark meaning to it, um, but it's kind of masked with this poppiness. So. I mean, that's kind of most of my songs, even my kind of more upbeat songs and dance tracks. All the meanings are quite deep and, um, yeah, they, they, they all run pretty deep, but, but no, they're, they're fun tracks. Awesome stuff. Now, absolutely love. Goodbye and thank you so much for chatting with us today on 3CR. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I'll chat to you soon, I hope. And that was Jack Vinken. 3
2: Stage a ballet On a tabletop The man performs, Fingers fly Yeah, yeah And although I ain't got no tune My show ain't gonna fly I'll find the music there The Magic
0: Covering Lulu, well, hating Peter Tatchell explores the life of melbourne Ray's British-based queer activist Peter Tatchell, and I spoke with the documentary's writer and director, Christopher Amos.
3: Well, I've known Peter for twenty years, uh, well, fifteen years when I started this film, and I knew that he was uh, he was unpopular with certain parts of the gay community, which I always found quite strange, considering how much he'd contributed to the gay community's cause. So I always found that intriguing. So I was quite interested in sort of exploring what it was about Peter that was very bedjumite in the sense that some people loved him and some people hated him. And I thought that was a good sort of premise for a film. So why do people love or hate him, do you think? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, he doesn't back down. He's always, he's an irritant, so... You know, he's he's got an agenda that he wants to see through and he doesn't care what people think. If if he feels that his cause is right and is on the right side of an argument, he, he doesn't shy away from confronting those that might disagree with him or even like that agree with him but would rather different tactics. And I always thought his tactics were brilliant because they got the attention that was required to create a debate and conversation around certain issues, which then over time would fester and eventually would actually turn into positive action. So I always thought that was brilliant because he was kind of like a catalyst. I always refer to it as he's the detonator in a grenade where he's the pin that's pulled out and then it explodes and suddenly everyone's debating a certain topic and then you know, from that debate, we have positive change. So you know, he was—he's was a catalyst for change,
0: and he's been doing it since the early nineteen seventies in Britain and abroad. After after moving there from Australia, what's your favourite direct action
3: of Peter Tadgill's, and why? Oh dear, I think um, I think the one that really captured my imagination is when he stormed into the Archbishop of Canterbury's Easter Sermon. I thought that was really brave because, you know, it was touching on a lot of different themes. It wasn't just about gay liberation. It was confronting religion and the politics that goes around religious attitudes towards homosexuality. And I grew up in Rockhampton where the local priest, the dean, he lived over the road from my family. And I was raised by two lesbians in Rockhampton. So, you know, I think that really had a really talk to me that action because, you know, I find that religion is one of the main persecutors of gay rights and one of the main obstacles that gay people face in having a gay life. And I think they, you know, challenging religion is really important. Um, as much as challenging politics as well. So I guess that was a a direct action that really sung out to me.
0: And he was so attacked and condemned for that direct action. Uh, But even the Archbishop of of Canterbury, you know, decades later in your documentary, kind of acknowledged that it was a gutsy thing to do and perhaps, you know, even the right thing to do.
3: Yeah, I don't know if he agrees with it being the right thing to do. Um, I did meet him and... Interview the former Archbishop, George Carey. And his take on it today was that he was on the wrong side of the argument back then, I believe. And I sometimes think, I can't speak on his behalf, obviously, but I do think in agreeing for me to interview him for this film was part of his um, way of sort of recognising that he could have done more back then and setting wrongs right. I don't know if that's the case, but it did feel a little bit like that. And, you know, I was able to sort of talk to him about where he stands today in terms of um, same-sex parenting, for instance, and he sort of told me that in his local community he, he had his friends who are same-sex parents. And so he recognises that that is a way of parenting that's acceptable to him today, but he did add the caveat that he would always prefer that it was um, a mother, a father and a sort of stereotypical family that was in place for raising families and children. So he's still a little bit borderline, but I think he also recognises that Peter's activism isn't just limited to gay rights, it's also to equality for um, for everyone. And, you know, that's a religious Um, ideal that's part of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Love thy neighbour. So I think, you know, I think when he sort of looks in hindsight at Peter's career and longevity, he takes all of that into account in his acceptance of Peter, even though he might not agree with everything. The challenging of religion in your documentary Hating Peter Tadgill has exquisite
0: timing with the release of the documentary considering the federal government's religious discrimination bill here in Australia. It's kind of, you know, putting Peter Tadgill in the debate almost.
3: Yeah, I, that part of um, what was going on was, I'm not sure where it's at at the moment, but I know that um, religious freedoms, so supposed religious freedoms and the law um, are constantly being like accepted where they shouldn't be and I think the Scott Morrison government's got a lot to answer for in terms of backtracking on sort of um, various gay discrimination bills and things like that that allows religion to still discriminate I think it's outrageous and hopefully you know if people watch this film they that might change their opinion and if they were siding towards Scott Morrison in that debate. Um, yeah, it's a good point, actually. Maybe we should be presenting this film as sort of background for people that are making those decisions.
0: I absolutely love the interviewing by Ian McKellen, interviewing Peter Tadgell in the documentary. Uh, how'd that come about?
3: Ian is an activist um, for an organisation called Stonewall primarily, And he is a long-standing supporter of Peter as well. Um, So it was, you know, it was reached out to early on in the pre-production process, and I knew that we needed some names attached to the film if we were going to get the eyeballs on this film after it comes out. Um, So, yeah, Peter reached out and he agreed. So we rocked up to Ian McKellen's house for a day's filming one day and put the two in front of the camera. Um, also, with Ian, I knew that I, I was interviewing Peter quite often in the research stage, and he would always come across very media like, like a broadcaster, and would paraphrase himself. And it, it was, it, he didn't have the same sort of level of respect for me as an interviewee documentary filmmaker as he would talking to one of his counterparts that's also got that history and that wisdom and has lived through the AIDS crisis and all of this history that Peter's lived through so it made sense to me that Peter would be interviewed by someone of his stature and standing with that history and I think that comes across when you watch the film in terms of and over the material that Peter's been through and I think Peter's um, reaction to those questions is is more natural than it would be, say, coming from a, me asking him a question and him answering that. Does that make sense? here? Yeah. it does. It's almost like there's an elitism, and a,
0: a personal
3: elitism
0: to Peter Tatchell. That's fascinating, considering his anti-authoritarianism.
3: I wouldn't say it was elitism. It was more coming from a, an understanding perspective where Ian's lived the same war that Peter has in terms of persecution of the gay community in the 70s and 80s and 90s and so on. And I think that shared experience gives Ian a bit more qualification to be the one that's asking those questions about Peter's life story than, say, a young whippersnapper like myself who didn't live in those those periods in UK UK and, and wasn't living in part of that, resistance um, in the gay liberation. So I think it's more about having that shared experience rather than elitism.
0: Hating Peter Tegel has Elton John as an executive producer. How would that come about?
3: Yeah, so Elton John and his husband, David Furnish, have been quite supportive early on. Um, initially, before we started the production, I'd met David at um, a function and he said, reach out to us whenever you're ready. We're happy to support And then before we got filming, I wanted to interview Elton as one of the main um, uh, people that we interviewed that could do a commentary on Peter's life. But he wasn't available. He was on a world tour at that point, so that wasn't going to happen. And then once we finished the rough cut of the film, I showed it to them and they loved it. And I asked if we could have a song from Elton in the soundtrack possibly over the final credits, and then I, then they agreed to that. And then from that I, I, I just thought, well, they keep saying yes to everything, I might as well see if we can add them on as exec producers, which um, they agreed to as well, and that helped open the doors to, say, Netflix, where the film is streaming worldwide now.
0: And Stephen Fry does beautiful commentary, I imagine. He's known Peter for many years and has been a great ally as well.
3: Yeah, so Stephen was, um, he, he's he's actually been on the front line with Peter at various actions, particularly against Russian, um, Russia, because they have a lot of anti-discrimination, uh, they have a lot of discrimination against the gay community in Russia. And also Stephen's done a TV series for, um, I think it was Channel 4, or BBC, Um where he went to Moscow and Russia and highlighted what was going on there. So I knew that he had that expert testimony that would be con- uh, that could contribute to that part of the film as well. Um and he also, you know, it's Stephen Fry is a great um orator and, you know, he's a gay ally. So he he had to be in the film and I was really grateful that he was able to make some time for us. The documentary goes to Russia with Peter Tadjil
0: during the Soccer World Cup in 2018, uh, and really kind of you know explores how he was exposing uh, the human rights abuses in Russia and Chechnya towards the LGBTIQ community. Did you go to Russia with Peter? Like, what was the what was the backstory?
3: Yeah, that's me. I filmed all of that. It was literally we had to go undercover, pretty much covertly, um, in the disguise uh, as football supporters. So I actually hired all this amazing film and sound equipment and stuff, um, like a steady cam and all this sort of bits and pieces. And I told Peter I was really excited, look at all this amazing gear that I'm gonna take. And he just looked at me and goes, Chris, there's no way you can take all that stuff because you know they're just gonna know that you're a professional filmmaker. if we if they if they pick up on you being a filmmaker, then you know that's our cover blow, and then we won't be let into the country. So you know, it won't be it won't happen. So then I had to sort of downsize everything, like literally with twelve hours before getting on a plane, and <laughs> then go undercover with Peter. And then we sort of got there, and we were sort of scoping out where the where he's going to do his action. And it was literally the heaviest military police buildup they've ever had in Moscow. So it was. We are very apprehensive that anything could happen in Red Square, which was the where he really wanted to sort of do his protest, um, you know, wave a gay flag, pull out banners, that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, it was about four days before a plan actually came together. And then there was also, you know, Peter wanted the media to know about it, but he didn't want to alert the authorities because he was worried that as soon as the authorities find out then he's not going to be able to do his planned action. So it was really touch and go there for a while, whether or not we could do something. And even like the night before, there was, you know, only the night before he was talking to people in London, do we send out a press release? Is it going to blow the cover? All this stuff. So it ended up being that we alerted the media through pieces of paper at another press conference on the same day as the protest was going to happen, literally two hours before. So no one knew that he was going to do a protest till two hours before the actual protest happened. And they were notified with pieces of paper at another press conference. It was extraordinary to be there and witness it and see how he was operating and how it all came together. Um, It was extremely tense. Peter was very sick. Um, wasn't sleeping and you know his personal trauma was obviously really worrying for me because I had a duty of care for him just as a person and as a friend as well as a filmmaker so it was extremely tense and I'm glad that we got out of it alive (laughs) and he wasn't um, injured or anything so that was yeah pretty scary.
0: Absolutely, because the documentary really explores the injuries that he has experienced as a as a direct action activist. Uh, it sounds like you and Peter really bonded in Russia.
3: Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, I, I've been friends with him before that anyway. It was very professional, um, very intense at times. Uh, I think we had one major Barney at one point uh, where it was just about something really silly to do with like his um, lapel mic not being turned on properly and then shooting a piece to camera from a distance and getting to the camera. And then I'm like, Oh, can I just check this out? And that he was very frustrated by that. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, he you're dealing with someone who's under extreme pressure. So, you know, I have to sort of put all my vanity (laughs) and ego out the window to sort of accommodate that as a filmmaker to allow him to be who he is and not react to that so that he would alter who he is for the camera sort of thing to appease me. So, yeah, it was extremely intense, to be honest. Is Peter Tedgel a perfectionist? Uh, Well, he likes things to be correct and... I think that comes from being misquoted so many times. And so when he does media interviews and things like that, he knows that his words are really important to, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I sort of thing. And so he always wants to be represented correctly and not misquoted in certain articles that have happened over the years. And I think because the media has really given him such a hard time Um, and, you know, particularly with the Bermondsey by-election in the early 80s, it's trained him up to be meticulous. So, yeah, I think you're right. He is pretty much a perfectionist. He ran for the Labor
0: Party. It was something like a 15-month campaign. Uh, Initially, people were very supportive in the electorate, but just the relentless homophobia from the tabloid press uh, made it into an incredibly toxic experience. That must have left a huge mark on him.
3: Yeah, I think so, and it was sad for him too because he could like, he was basically trying to do things by the book, the legitimate way of making changes, which is, you know, get elected and then make changes in the government through parliament, and I think, you know, he tried to do it by the book the correct way, but, you know, the way um, the homophobes came out for him, and the media you know he was nicknamed Red Pete, you know turned into this um, dangerous man in society, you know all by the all by the Murdoch press pretty much, and the Sun newspaper and you know they they really did a hatchet job on him, and so it made it very, very difficult for him to put through an agenda for equality um, that was going to be good for the supporters of the community because they were only seeing headlines that sort of made him out to be a socialist, communist, all this sort of stuff. You know, he was even crucified for being an Australian working in UK politics. So I think that experience really did harden him and give him a resolve for fighting injustice even more. So it is very much a part of who, the, who he is today. 3CR
0: You're listening to an interview with Hating Peter Tatchell, director Christopher Amos on three CRs in your face. So how did you get to know Peter Tatchell all those years ago? What's the backstory
3: there? Peter, uh, I knew that he was a well-known activist and I was a magazine editor for Bent magazine, which was the largest UK gay publication at the time and distributed for free in bars and clubs all over the UK. And so I knew it was really important that he would have a column inside that publication because he was the leading spokesperson. So I actually had him talk once a month, well, not talk, but write a column once a month. And I also had the um, the chairman of Stonewall have a conversation with me each month as well. So I had sort of the right and left of the gay debate, talking in the publication every month. And then, you know, we'd give them a little tiny fee for their efforts. And so it was just... Through that writing, that I built up a rapport with him. To what extent do you think that Peter
0: Tadgell is under recognised in Australia?
3: Yeah, so he, I, I I know that it's, it's he's done a lot of um, expert testimony, so to speak, like on ABC and SBS over the years. So even though he's under recognised. It's not from lack of having recognition in the media here. It's just that his exposure isn't as consistent. So over that 55-year period of activism, he has been picked up on by media here. But I know that in terms of when the debate was going through for marriage equality, I did ask Peter, are you going to chime in on this and like make a statement? And he said, well, he said, I won't because... Australia has a very good representation of activists fighting the cause here as it is. So he tends to lend his uh, voice and time and energy into um, activism where he feels like his involvement can make a difference. And so he could see that what was happening here was already being well handled by activists. So that's why he didn't sort of reach out and get involved too much. Um, so potentially that's why his um profile's not as big here, but it's interesting. I mean Australians
0: revere other Australians who you know succeed overseas and have huge brand recognition and name recognition overseas, but yet the queer community, the gay community here in Australia doesn't seem to acknowledge Peter's huge contribution
3: as much as I think it should. What do you think's going on there? So I think it depends on the age of the person, so If you talk to, uh, like, gay males over 55, I expect the majority of them will have heard of Peter Tatchell. But if you speak to lesbians under 40, I doubt they will have. And I think that's a generational thing because the battles have sort of been not won 100%, but the lifestyles of the generation of gays between sort of up to 50, has been very open for them. You know, a lot of them didn't live through the AIDS crisis, for instance, and so their awareness of gay politics isn't as strong as those that did have to fight before. And, you know, the younger ones sort of enjoy the celebration of gay lifestyle with gay pride marches and things like that. But in terms of actually being actively on the front line doing direct action. I don't think many of them have had to do that in their lifetime, so they're probably not as aware of uh, activists of notoriety, um, particularly if they're not in this country. I think, you know, Rodney Kroon is kind of well-known here um, and gay identities might be more well-known here, but in terms of, like, Peter... Uh, being based in a, in the, London in the UK, I don't think that has fallen on the radar of the publications here in the gay press and mainstream media. Does that make sense?
0: It's it's interesting in Britain because even during the the early years of the HIV/AIDS crisis, and also when Peter was taking on the church, he was viewed by the public, including the queer community, as an irritant. But then he took on Robert Mugabe and tried to make citizens' arrests. That Mm. made him a hero. Can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, your documentary explores that so eloquently.
3: Yeah, so I guess when you put a common enemy and then you can kind of, you can win over affection of people that might not necessarily be on your side if there's a common enemy, like a bigger, worse, bigger, so to speak. So I think it's a case of that happening. And, you know, Peter was brutally bashed up and the cameras were there. And it was the second attempt as well of a citizen's arrest on Robert Mugabe. So I think that was very gutsy. And I think people, you know, I think there was a begrudging, begrudging respect for Peter at that point. And I think that's what won over people's affection. And, you know, I think just the longevity, like people always seem to warm to people that go through ups and downs and ups and downs and keep fighting and bouncing back. And I think that does inherently come with more respect for that personality. Um, You see it with politicians, don't you, that have had a long career where they've been up and down with the public's affection. And I think that's what's happened with Peter. And in terms of the, like, the actual results of Peter's active uh, direct action against Mugabe, there were sanctions placed on Zimbabwe and, you know, the world did take notice and did react as a consequence. So, you know, it had a very positive result in terms of, you know, raising the awareness of the atrocities happening in Zimbabwe. So I think also Peter sort of highlighting equality in a different uh, part of the world sort of made people realise that Peter's there to fight for equality, not just for gay rights. And I think that sort of brought on his straight allies a lot more than it, than it previously had.
0: One thing that wasn't known to me was Peter's evangelical background as a child. And your documentary explores that and his beautiful relationship with his mother and the friction that's there but also the understanding and and love. Do you think that Peter's um, Christian background kind of, you know, prepared him to be such a, a militant activist?
3: I totally believe that to be the case. Um, there's, I mean, you can see it in the early start of the film as well. In, his lo- in the school magazine, it even, I, th- I can't remember the exact words, but it predicted him to be um, a world leader or someone that would change the world. And so, you know, he was very active in politics even when he was like 14, 13, like 13 to 15. Um, So it was already the writing was on the wall a little bit. Um, He was voted head schoolboy at his school because he was that sort of character that would speak up for everyone. Um, So it was very much part of his DNA. But I think in terms of his moral background, um and wanting, like, everyone to be equal, I think that has a religious underlying um, from his days at church as a child um, because he just sees everyone as the same. He doesn't believe in one person being more important than another just because of their status. he's, he's, He's a big believer in equality for all and freedom of speech, so I think... You know, that has its foundation in religion, potentially. Um, and it became more apparent once I got to meet his mum and sister and see him in his fam- with his family here in Australia on a holiday out here one time. And it was sort of an epiphany when I noticed that. And I don't even know if Peter had recognised it himself at the time, but I'm fairly certain he's he's aware of it now. Um yeah, I mean, he has a lot of religious friends as well that are gay priests and things like that. So, you know, he doesn't sort of... Another thing that's quite religious... I, I don't like this word religious because it's more about just being a, a, a righteous person, isn't it, rather than a religious person, is that say someone... He has a debate with someone that that, that he doesn't agree with him, and then they do change their point of view, he doesn't hold um, animosity towards that person. As long as they've come good with their opinions and they're on the right side of the debate, he's very forgiving and he doesn't sort of let a history of um, debate with someone cloud his future relationship with that person. As long as they're on the right side of the argument now, he'll always sort of forgive and forget and move on. So I find that to be quite a nice, righteous attitude to him as well, that some might say is religious. What has he said to you about the documentary when he saw it? Yeah, so, I I mean, I had to involve him in a lot of it um, in terms of fact-checking information and in terms of getting access to certain people as well. Um, He's given me my freedom to create the film as I needed to, which is great, and that includes sort of, you know, also being objective about some of his activism, such as the outing of the archbishops in the film. So I think he's just grateful that it got made finally (laughs) because it was like five years in the process, and I think it's a relief that it's out now and that most majority of people are enjoying what they're watching and are being introduced to Peter as a person. I think there might be some sort of, uh, not regret, but I think there's a lot of activism that he's been involved in that didn't make the final film, which is sad that it hasn't, such as um, Peter's work on the anti-discrimination bill and the South African constitution, which would have been great to have in there as well. Um, There's other activism that he's done with West Papua. Um, So I think, if anything, he would rather not he would like a, an extended version of a film about his life um, that touched on more of these campaign issues and also to focus more on the, um, the campaigns as opposed to focusing on him as the man. Um, you know, that was something that I always had to explain to him. This film's actually about you as a person. You're the protagonist. It's your story that we're telling here. It's not about the activism and the campaigns and that was really hard to sort of pull... Pull the story back to Peter all the time, as opposed to it being about religion and gay politics sort of thing. So, there's they were some of the sort of struggles that I was having, um, but I think overall, he's you know he's very pleased with the overall film. It's a fabulous documentary. How can people see hating Peter Tadgell? It's very simple. If you've got Netflix, you can watch it on Netflix
0: anytime you like. Awesome stuff. Chris A. Mosh, should be very proud of your documentary. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. 3CR.
2: Listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
0: Susie and the Banshee's there, fireworks. We also heard from the style council with the lodgers, taking us out to Peshmo with Everything Counts. We'll catch you next week on your face.
4: delusion about children trapped in tunnels that's how we got aussie q it seems and now everything else i mean now it's just a six month pipeline from that to australians who 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 live in this alternate uh, american fantasy land where they post about donald trump all the time so its ability to via save the children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what i found fascinating you know i talk a lot in the aussie q videos about how your auntie she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie-like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now
2: listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
1: I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now.
2: We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the
1: station on 9419 8377.